Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few moments out of your podcast uh, just to ask you to uh, think about um, making a donation to continue allowing us to produce Where We Live and uh, bring it to you every day. Uh, the number to donate is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Think about the content that you hear on this station and specifically on this program, where each day we work hard to keep you connected to your community, to the issues that matter most to the people in your backyard. If that is something that you value, we hope you will support it today. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure, and it's so appreciated by us. one 800 584-2788 or online at wnpr.org and thank you. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on April 26, 2018. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we take on guilt. How does this emotion impact ourselves, our families? Research has shown guilt can take up to five hours of our time each week. Does that guilty feeling make you feel anxious, ashamed, resentful? Coming up, we'll hear from licensed psychologist Guy Winch, who describes guilt as, quote, a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. We'll hear from him on ways to move past guilt, whether it comes from your parents, your spouse, your boss. That's later. First, can guilt actually be good for us? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joins us by phone. Dr. Amrisha Vaish is assistant professor of psychology and director of the Early Social Development Lab at the University of Virginia. And she studies how, when, and why guilt emerges in children. Uh, Dr. Vaish, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. First off, let's let's define what exactly is guilt. Yeah, so guilt um, at its core is uh, kind of an aversive emotion. There's no doubt about that. It's a kind of a negative feeling that we have when we think and believe uh, or are aware that we've hurt someone, that we've harmed someone, um, especially someone we care about. And how is that different from shame? Well, so one of the things that uh, that psychologists have been uh, have been trying to figure the, uh, ha- figure out is how guilt is different from these other kinds of aversive emotions. Um, and one um, popular idea uh, currently is that guilt is a, this emotion that we feel when we are focused on the harm that we've caused other people. So uh, when we are really focused on what we've done, the, our actions, uh, and how and the kind of harm that they've caused others, um, and it's about to motivate us to repair that harm and to try and really fix the relationship that we've damaged. Um, and shame, on the other hand, is believed to be, uh, to kind of really have a focus on the self. So shame is thought to be a focus on how I am a bad person, not just that I have done a bad thing, but somehow I am 
bad at my core. My whole self is bad. And um, so one one idea in the literature um, is that shame doesn't motivate the same kind of repair. It actually makes us withdraw because it's too painful to think about how um, our entire core is bad. And so we don't, it doesn't motivate us to repair in the same way that guilt does. That's one idea. It's not, not everyone agrees on that. And there is some um, literature now suggesting that sh- shame can also motivate some kinds of reparative actions under some circumstances. But that's broadly speaking one way that we think about that distinction. As I mentioned, uh, you study how the feeling of guilt develops in children. Where did that, where did that begin? Yeah, so, you know, broadly speaking, my colleagues and I are really interested in understanding how it is that humans cooperate, how we live together in large social groups, how we cooperate in large groups, um, and so on, and especially how children are able to engage in this kind of social living. Humans rely really sort of critically and vitally on our social groups for our survival. And so it's become really important for us to kind of maintain these relationships in the long term. And we think that guilt is one of the things that one of the emotions, one of the motivations that allows us to live in these kinds of groups. And so our idea um, is that, you know, when, so we live in these groups and we need our groups to survive, but inevitably we at times hurt those that we have these relationships with, we have these cooperative relationships with, we transgress against people. And guilt is the emotion that informs us when we've done that, and it motivates us to repair these relationships. And so uh, what we're really interested in understanding is how is it that humans go about doing this, and in particular, what kinds of tools do even young children have to engage in this kind of repair um, in, of their relationships when they've caused harm. And so we're really under, uh, interested in understanding uh, the emergence of guilt, which is this really critical reparative emotion, cooperative emotion, um, and how that emerges in young children. Uh, you led a study in Germany involving uh, two- and three-year-olds. Uh, tell us uh, how uh, that study, um, how, what you were able to find, how did you lay out the study particularly? Yeah, so uh, what we did in the study with two- and three-year-olds, and, and a study that was conducted in the lab, so children came into the lab, and we had them engage in a really fun game. So we had this large, really fun marble run that they were playing with, and they were kind of really engrossed uh, in playing with. And what we'd set up prior to that is that an experimenter had built this really kind of intricate, um, lovely tower um, and had said, you know, how much she loves this tower and how much she's worked on it and, um, and how hurt she would be and upset she would be if um, it fell down, if it broke. Um, And so once she set this up, uh, we then gave children this marble run to play with um, and also gave someone else a marble run to play with. So a second experimenter had another marble run that she was playing with. Um, And what happened then at some point while they were playing with these marble runs is that we manipulated the child's marble run so that the child's marble rolled out and out of the marble run and uh, and uh, damaged this tower that the experiment that the first experimenter had built. So, she, so the child's uh, actions caused harm to someone, which was our critical sort of guilt condition. The child caused harm uh, to someone else, um, and then we compared that condition to a condition in which the other experimenter, the second experimenter's marble rolled out and damaged. Um, the the first experimenter's tower. So this is what we call the sympathy condition, which is that the child sees that someone has been harmed, but the child didn't cause the harm. So the child can feel concern for the other person, but is not thinking, I caused this harm, and so should not experience guilt and the same kind of high level of motivation to fix the harm um, that the child has caused. And what we found um, is that at three years of age, 
children very clearly showed both in their verbal um, uh, statements um, and in their physical repair um, that they were specifically motivated to repair this harm more when they had caused it than when someone else had caused it. Um, So they said things like, oh, let me fix it, I can help you fix it, um, and so on. Or they actually physically went and tried to pick up the pieces and repair it more when they had caused the damage than when someone else had caused the damage. Um, And at two years of age, we didn't see the same kind of difference. So two-year-olds, we saw in other behaviors, such as where they looked, for instance, just their eye gaze, that they noticed the difference between when they had caused harm and when someone else had caused it, but it was not reflected in their actual reparative behavior. And so we think this shows that by about three years of age, children experience something like guilt in the right circumstances when they have caused someone harm, and that motivates them to actually repair the harms they've caused. Um, And so this is, you know, a fairly early emerging kind of uh, reparative emotion. I've read that uh, guilt really shows up more when you're looking at children uh, after the age of six. So this is something that develops over time, a learned be- uh, reaction behavior uh, to uh, how others are, are rea- interacting with them, teaching them right from wrong. Uh, <clears throat> so, excuse me. So um, there is no doubt that guilt becomes more complex over time. I mean, what we have studied is a very, very kind of prototypical, really simple situation that we think children will be able to understand um, pretty simply and without too much kind of verbal intervention and verbal instruction. Um, But there's no doubt that guilt becomes more complex over time, both as children... um, children's own sort of social and cognitive capacities increase, but also as they are internalizing more and more norms of their of their group, of their society, um, of their parents and teachers and so on, their peer norms and so on and so forth. And so as they understand that more, there's no doubt that they're going to have a sort of more sophisticated, more complex sense of guilt. And also, for instance, be able to anticipate guilt. That's a capacity that we don't we don't know, but we don't think is is going to be present at such an early age as three or four years of age. That's something that has to emerge over development, to be able to know, if I engage in this kind of negative action, I'm going to feel guilt, and so I better not engage in it. So even, you know, over the course of development, even into adulthood, guilt is going to be becoming more complex um, as we, you know, uh, internalize more norms, understand more about ourselves and about other people um, and about our society. Um, But we think that the sort of the core seeds of guilt are present um, uh, early uh, by, you know, as early as their uh, preschool years. This is where we live. On the phone with me, I'm Risha Vaish, Assistant Professor of Psychology, also Director of the Early Social Development Lab at the University of Virginia. Uh, Today, as we explore that emotion, guilt, where it comes from, and uh, if it's beneficial uh, to us, uh, we're hearing from um, Risha that uh, studies show that guilt starts to uh, be something that two- to uh, three-year-olds exhibit, uh, depending on uh, the extenuating circumstances or, or situations that they're in, and there's a, a benefit to learning empathy. But Amrisha, what has the research shown in um, can too much guilt be a, a bad thing? Right. So there's no doubt that, um, you know, first of all, as I noted at the start, guilt is an aversive emotion. It doesn't feel good. And so partly that's beneficial because as it doesn't feel good, we want to get rid of it. We want to make that feeling go away. And one of the things that helps us or the critical thing that makes us make it go away is to actually act in a way uh, that 
that you know re- restores this thing, that restores the damage and the ha- the harmed relationship, and therefore makes us feel good again about ourselves and about the relationship. But there's no doubt that too much of it um, can can lead to really kind of negative thoughts if we ruminate on it, or if, for instance, we don't have a way to fix it. You know, if there is no way to really repair the damage, then we might really we might not be able to break out of that feeling of guilt, and it can certainly lead to um, uh, feelings of extreme sadness um, and not being able to kind of move on uh, beyond that uh, that negative feeling. Um, and so there's no doubt, and, and, and it can transform presumably into feelings of shame as well. And so if we begin to, um, over time, think, sort of internalize this negative feeling and think that, you know, we ourselves are bad, um, then that can certainly be maladaptive as well. Um, and so uh, when, you know, when we talk about guilt as being, having these adaptive effects, as uh, having these beneficial effects, we're certainly talking within reason, within kind of limits, um, and only when it's really appropriate, when it seems like we have some control over the situation and when it seems like we um, we can handle kind of that aversive feeling in, a, in an adaptive way. That's when it makes sense. Certainly for young children, we don't want to burden them with a kind of, you know, carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. We want them to understand the consequences of their actions. We want them to understand when they've hurt someone and, and especially understand how they can go about repairing that hurt um, so that they can sort of function and thrive in their relationships. Uh, to our listeners, do you remember your parents guilting you as a child? And, and if you have children today, is this a technique that you use that you think is appropriate? You can join the conversation. So looking again at the, the research, Amrisha, should mm-hmm. adults uh, uh, be afraid of, of using this technique? And what's a good balance? Right. So um, as I said, I think it really, um, I think it uh, I think it certainly has to be used uh, very wisely um, and and uh, in an, in a sort of empathic way on the part of the adult. So one has to, uh, you don't, what you re- definitely don't want to do is make the child feel bad about their entire self. Um, you don't want to say you're a bad, you know, you're a bad boy, you're a bad girl. That's not, that's certainly not the aim here. The aim is to make the child really understand what effect their actions had on other people. And so we know that uh, even earlier than age three, even earlier than age two, uh, infants and children empathize with others. We know this from a lot of research. So that's a very natural proclivity that uh, that infants and children have to feel concern for others. So that is something that happens naturally. And what we then want them to understand when they have caused the harm and made others feel upset or distressed, we want them to understand what their responsibility was in doing that such that um, they can repair the harm and they can also learn from it so that they don't engage in the same kinds of harm, uh, same kinds of harmful behaviors in the future. So they can be more mindful of others' um, feelings and their place in those relationships. And so adults, I think adults' role here uh, I'm, I, I have to say as a, uh, just sort of upfront that I'm, this is not my area of research. The parenting aspect of it is not something I have myself researched. But I'm aware of the literature which suggests that adults' um, role here uh, is in part to help children take the perspective of others, to really understand how others are feeling, and to understand what, they, what children themselves can do um, to sort of to, to fix the situation and to kind of really um, uh, to make it up to the other person and then to learn from it for the future. And so the balance here, I think, has to be between uh, 
focusing on the action, focusing on the specific situation rather than generalizing to a broad kind of sense of the child is bad, you know, making the child feel bad about them, themselves um, uh, and, and helping them to really deal with it in a proactive, uh, constructive way. That, I think, is the core uh, of the approach here rather than uh, feeling bad about themselves and withdrawing, for instance, or not learning the constructive uh, lessons. Dr. Amrisha Vaish is Assistant Professor of Psychology and Director of the Early Social Development Lab at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, so we now understand more about the different levels of guilt and where it comes from. Thanks, Mom and Dad. But too much guilt isn't a good thing. We'll hear from psychologist Guy Winch about why that is after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. Do you wrestle with guilt in your personal relationships? And again, if you're a parent, do you see yourself using guilt as a way, as a parenting tool? You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook book and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff. We're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Where We Live podcast. Uh, we're taking a moment also to ask you to support the work that we do on this program to ensure that it is here for weeks and months and years to come. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure. All you have to do is go to the phones, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org. I think one of the tricky things about a, a live radio show is uh, we're, we are only in one time block, and that might not be a time you're able to listen. So that's the, the great part of the podcast. You can take Where We Live with you wherever you're going at whatever time. So if that's something that's important to you, something you rely on to learn about what's happening in your community and in the world, the number to call 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on April 26, 2018. You know, growing up in Ireland, it's a Catholic country, so everybody wears their emotions, you know, outside. And uh, you ask somebody how they are, and they drop this, you know, mackerel net of feelings all over you. That's how I am. See if you can stand up now. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, well, no, it's, it, there's, a, there's a kind of, uh, people have perfected certain, you know, um, uh, emotions in Ireland, like guilt is kind of... Uh, yes. Yes. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. People can do down the phone. You, people are ringing up from all over the world to check on their relatives. How are you? How are you doing? And they say, oh, it's not good. Well, well what? I thought they gave you medicine. Yeah, I stopped taking that. Well, why? What's, what, what? That's going to be agony, isn't it? They go, yeah, but the pain is company. So people, they're good, <laughs> they're good at tripping guilt. That's Irish comedian Dylan Moore in an interview with late-night talk show host Conan O'Brien. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about guilt. Uh, I, I remember uh, growing up with some good old-fashioned Catholic guilt. Do you? And where do we pick up this emotion? Uh, in preparation for this show, my producers and I talked about when we feel guilty or when we've been made to feel guilty. Um, I leave early in the morning to head into work, and if my son doesn't see me before I leave, my husband tells me later that he gets upset as a working mother, I can't help feeling guilty in those moments. What about you? Do you travel a lot for your job? Have you felt guilty leaving your children or your spouse temporarily? Often that feeling of being feeling guilty subsides, but what happens when it doesn't? How does this emotion take up your day? Do you see it as a valuable feeling? Why or why not? We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome my next guest, Dr. Guy Winch, a licensed psychologist, author of several books, including 
emotional first aid, healing rejection, guilt, failure, and other everyday hurts. He joins us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So we were talking about this uh, pro-social emotion, guilt, but and that there are positives to it in child rearing, but also negatives. Uh, tell us about um, some of the reasons that guilt can bring on um, unhealthy uh, reactions that can impact our everyday lives. So first of all, when guilt is unresolved, then it's really a like a snooze alarm in your head that keeps going off because it, it's reminding you to do something, to fix something. But if you can't resolve it, then there's not much you can do seemingly. And then you just are constantly distracted by guilt. We know from studies that when people have unresolved guilt, they have trouble enjoying life. They will make unconscious choices which are less pleasurable and fun because they have a hard time allowing themselves to have fun, even if they don't realize it. And in some cases, people can even be induced to self-punish in certain ways. Again, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously, but guilt weighs on us very heavily and it, and it just is a party pooper, a damper mm-hmm. on our mood. Party pooper, indeed. Uh, we were under, from your book, you write that uh, studies estimate people can experience two hours a day of mild guilt, five hours a week of moderate guilt, and then three and a half hours a month of, of severe guilt. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier that um, these feelings can subside, but when they don't, you can look at that as unhealthy guilt. Um, I'm just curious, what are some tactics or ways that people can move past uh, when they feel like they're stuck in that, that, uh, that rut of feeling guilty all the time? So first of all, I think those numbers, the, those are the numbers in the survey, they, I think they're a little bit inflated. Perhaps the research was conducted in Ireland, I, I don't recall. Um, but uh, the, the thing about guilt, what you have to do is because it usually gets triggered around relationships, around interpersonal context with other people, then the first thing you want to do if you have this feeling of I might have harmed someone by action, by inaction, inadvertently, the first thing we want to do is to try and apologize, try and repair that relationship. And you can do that effectively if you apologize effectively. In other words, what will help dissolve your guilt is not just, okay, I said I'm sorry, but that the other person is actually conveying an authentic sense of forgiveness so that you actually did repair the relationship. It's not the effort that's going to dissolve the guilt. It's the success of that effort. And then, of course, there are the cases in which we can't resolve the guilt because the person's not around, not available. It's not something that's technically or you know, practically possible to do. And in those cases, we have to look at the process of self-forgiveness as a way to uh, resolve unresolved uh, nagging guilt. And there's different types of guilt. I just mentioned uh, having parental guilt, leaving my children to go to work. But again, it subsides on the drive to work. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm distracted. And, and that can be a tool as well. That can be a tool as well. That's uh, the separation guilt that you're describing is extraordinarily common uh, for parents with young children and uh, really for caretakers of all kinds when they have to go and live their own life uh, or do things for themselves. And the idea there um, is that, yes, it might subside when you're in the car and starting to get work done and focus on your work day. But if it's really a very regular occurrence, then it's probably useful to come up with some kind of strategy to deal with the guilt. And in that, this case, it would be a strategy like, yeah, they're going to be some mornings. I don't get to kiss my son goodbye before I leave. But 
after those mornings, I will then, you know, make especially sure to read him his favorite story at night or to spend quality time with him that I might not have on the weekend. In other words, if in your own head you're figuring out a way to compensate for that, then it could make it easier for you when you leave because you might feel a little bit guilty to hear that he's been crying, but you know there'll be something he'll really enjoy coming up later on, and that can also help. Uh, Kristen's calling from Manchester. Kristen, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Um, one of the things I've always thought about guilt is that it's good for us, and we choose to feel guilty because it makes us feel better. Um, if we have to make hard decisions or if we've done something in the past that we feel bad about or if there's something we could change but choose not to, if we feel guilty about it, we either get to punish ourselves or we get to remind ourselves that, hey, at least I feel guilty, so that means I'm a good person. We could choose not to feel guilty, but if we do that, doesn't that mean we're bad? Mm, interesting. Guy, what do you think? Okay, well, that's that's actually um, a very common assumption, but also an incorrect one. In other words, we actually can't choose to switch off guilt. It would be terrific if we could, and there are many guilt-prone people that would probably pay a lot of money to have that superpower. But as in most of our emotions, once they're triggered, um, we can try and find ways to deal with them, to have them diminish, but we can't just stop them. We can't choose to not feel guilty. And that's why it's actually important to understand that when guilt lingers, um, it is something we have to resolve. Now, uh, what this woman is saying that I think is great is, yes, if you feel guilty, but think of it as, well, at least that means I have a conscious, I have standards, and therefore it means I'm a good person, that might be an interesting way to make the guilt feel uh, less impactful. So it's useful in that way, but that's not the same as deciding to or to not feel guilty. Uh, Again, with us uh, is Dr. Guy Winch, a licensed psychologist and author of Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts, joining us from NPR's New York studios. Uh, You write in your book that this excessive unhealthy guilt causes two types of, of wounds, psychological wounds. What are they? So the first thing it does is it really um, impacts our ability to enjoy life. As I mentioned, it uh, makes us consciously and unconsciously choose things which are less enjoyable, avoid things which are. If you think about it, at a time you felt really, really guilty, um, you probably would have a hard time really enjoying your birthday if you felt really guilty about something or enjoying events which otherwise should be joyful because guilt can really put a blanket on those. But the other thing it does when the guilt is unresolved is it can really impact our relationships. If you think about for example, families in which one member might feel guilty toward another but is unable to resolve it. So over time, if that other person keeps making you feel bad just by their presence or whenever you go to the family events, you might choose to avoid the topics that might remind you of that. You might choose to avoid the events that might strain the relationship. You might even start to feel resentful toward the person who's making you feel guilty, even if they're not actually doing anything to make you feel guilty, just because when you see them, you are reminded and you feel bad about yourself. And therefore, in time, it can really be toxic to our relationships and our ties, both familial and social. And when guilt is unresolved, and it can even bleed and, and, and impact whole family systems or friendship systems, because then those tensions become apparent and people start to coalesce on different sides around them. So there's all kinds of implication of leaving guilt unresolved, both for the individual and for the relationships. We heard from a a listener on on Twitter, Guy, his name is David. He writes, he always feels guilty and that guilt is a precondition of life. Um, No, 
it's uh, I don't think it's a precondition of life. I think, as we said, it is a helpful um, social, pro-social emotion. But like many psychological constructs, um, some to some degree they are useful. In other words, having them in a certain dosage, in small dosages, that's useful. Having too much of it becomes damaging. And so it's not a yes or no question about guilt. It's about how much, whether it signals something that you can then do something with to make re relationships better, to absolve the guilt, or whether it's really lingering and interfering. Guy Winch is our guest today on Where We Live as we explore this emotion of guilt, how it impacts our lives and our relationships. We're going to get more into um, some of those impacts after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Speaking of guilt, have all those conversations on WNPR the past week about our membership drive made you feel guilty? Have other listeners stepped up in your place to support? Well, now you can move past those guilty feelings by making a pledge to support Where We Live and all the great programming on this public radio station. Here are my two of my colleagues to tell you how. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on April 26, 2018. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on April 26, 2018. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about guilt. Psychologist Guy Winch has written a book about addressing unresolved guilt and other emotions. It's called Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. He's joining us today from NPR's Midtown Manhattan studio. Uh, we were talking earlier about guilt can be unhealthy. And before we uh, talk more about the different types of guilt, I wanted uh, to take a listener call. Dan's calling from Vernon. Dan, go ahead. Yes, I'm going to try to make it quick. It's a long story, but uh, the doctor uh, had many points that I've been feeling for a long time. I got married when I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, and because of culture, religion, and society, uh, I, I, did, I wasn't strong enough to go against the norms at the, at the time, and uh, I married a woman and I uh, had kids with her. Now, the guilt comes in the form is that I, at that time, I didn't realize that I was literally gay, and I am gay, and that I would not be giving her the husband and the father that, you know, they, th that family needed, because I wasn't being myself. Once I came out and realized that I was doing it, and, and that I was miserable, beyond miserable, um, I, I divorced my ex-wife, and I told her, and I divorced her, and I realized, oh my God, I ruined this woman's life because I wasn't upfront with her, and it, it, that has weighed on me for my entire life, ever since then. But the problem is not me. I can I can deal with that, and I, I'll have to live with that. The problem is that when my kids give me. Christmas cards at, at times, and I don't want to get too much into it because I, I start getting emotional. <sighs> Some of the stuff that they put on those cards and they how they talk, how I was a good dad and I was always there for them and that type of stuff, it really, it, it just breaks me every time. And I didn't realize how much of that guilt I was putting on them by frequently during the year saying things like, you know, I know I wasn't there for you. I know that that you grew up without me and so it, it, it's just I don't want to get too much into it because I start getting emotional but that guilt has always been there mm -hmm. and it's 
horrible, a horrible thing to live with. I got to tell you, it's really bad. Well, Dan, thank you for calling in to the show, and uh, I'm sorry that you're you're dealing with that. Um, what kind of advice would you give uh, Dan Guy and the type of guilt that he is feeling? How can he move past that? So, first of all, yes, that's a that's a difficult situation, Dan. But here's the thing. Um, children, and I'm assuming they're maybe perhaps older now, just from what you described, I'm not quite sure. But regardless of their age, they might be, you know, preteens, teens, adults, whatever it is, they could still benefit from a close, tight, loyal relationship with you. So if that relationship um, is close and tight and loyal, that's great. And you should remind yourself that, you know, you might have been absent at certain times during their childhood, um, but you've tried since then to be the best dad you can possibly be. Um, And if it's not that way now, then that's what you should work towards. You should really try and figure out, well, how can I be there for them? Uh, They might not need me in the way they did when they were babies, perhaps, but they still need a father. A father can still add value to their lives. And to the extent that what the guilt that you're describing is that you weren't there because you had to split custody, which a lot of people do, so they feel guilty about the, you know, that part of the week that they're not present or the parts of the month they're not, then again, it's really about um, what was the relationship like when you were present? How engaged were you uh, with them in their lives? And how engaged are you with them in their lives now? How, mu- how supportive are you? How unconditional are you? How much of a cheerleader, uh, support, encouragement? So there's so much you can do for them and for your ex-wife now. And rather than dwell on the guilt of what you hadn't been able to do or the mistakes you might have made, I think it's much more productive if you focus on, well, that might have been the case, but there's a lot that I can contribute. I'm going to sit down and make lists of ways in which I can really add value now and do more, perhaps, than I've been doing to make their lives better. Uh, Guy, you write about uh, unresolved guilt. There's uh, different treatments, so to speak, uh, to get to move past it, one being an effective apology. Yes. And the thing about apologies is it's something that we kind of learn from preschool years, right, that uh, from the age of three or four, we're paraded in and told to say, okay, I'm sorry. And we kind of deliver it in that very perfunctory way of just saying the words, I'm sorry. And unfortunately, um, our apologies, our adults aren't much more sophisticated. Uh, We don't quite get the point of the apology. And so I'm going to be very specific about what it is. The point of the apology is not to offer excuses and explanations for what you did. It's to offer emotional validation uh, to let the other person understand that you get what their experience was. So if you didn't show up at your best friend's birthday party, the idea of an apology is not to give them a litany of excuses about, well, this is what happened at work, and then I got home and I had a headache and I this, because that's not where they are. Where they are is They're hurt. They're disappointed. And if you want to get a real forgiveness from them, you have to let them know that you get the consequences of your actions. So the apology has to be focused on them. I'm so sorry. I didn't show up to your party. You must have been wondering where I was. I hope it didn't ruin your night. I'm sure it was awkward if people asked and you didn't know what to say. You know, so first it starts with an I'm sorry statement, then with a acknowledgement that the norms or expectations in the friendship or relationship have been violated. Then there has to be a statement of uh, regret. Then there has to be a statement of either atonement or compensation. So maybe I can take you to dinner for your birthday to make it up for you 
in some kind of way. But ultimately, the bottom line is the person will be able to forgive you best if they really feel that, oh, you know what? You really got it. You really got what I went through. It wasn't just a I'm sorry. You really expressed it in a way that I feel like, oh, wow, they got it. They thought about it. It was about me. And so apologies are about the other person in their emphasis, not about your excuses. Uh, and those tend to be much more effective. What about if the person uh, is, is not able to forgive you or you're not able to apologize? You also write in your book about self-forgiveness. How does that work? So self-forgiveness occurs, you know, needs to occur really in a situation in which you are not able to apologize to the person. They're no longer around. They don't want to speak to you. It's inappropriate for one reason or another. And in that sense, if the guilt remains unresolved, um, and again, we're talking about unresolved guilt here, not if you don't feel that guilt, but if the guilt is unresolved, you need to find some kind of self-contract of self-forgiveness. And to do that, you have to do, uh, you have to go through several steps. And number one is you really have to take responsibility for what you did. You really, if you're going to forgive yourself, you need to know exactly and be honest with yourself about exactly what for, what are the implications of your actions. And in much the same way, an apology has to be focused on the consequences for the other person, so does self-forgiveness. You have to really spell out for yourself, well, this is how that person was harmed, just using the party example, uh, so that, you know, that I, I didn't get to the party, they must have worried about me and been distracted, they must have felt awkward, they must have been telling people that I'll be coming, they must have wanted to show off how close we are and yet I wasn't even there. Once you can really take responsibility um, for everything, you know, all the consequences, then you can start looking at, all right, so what's a kind of atonement I can do? What's a makeup um, I can do? I'm just going to flash back to your example before the break, just because it's uh, topical at the moment. Um, so somebody loves NPR, listens to all the programming, but they never donated to the drives. And so, you know, even if there's a little bit of guilt there, um, they would enjoy the show much more if they then decided, you know what, I'm going to donate whatever the amount is, but then I won't feel guilty. I'll be able to enjoy the programming more. And that's a self-forgiveness contract because it's not a person they're dealing with, it's an entity. So, but that's a lot, okay, if I donate even this much, that'll take the guilt off and then I really will be able to listen guilt-free and enjoy the shows more. Couldn't have said it better myself. We'll have Thank to you. save that one. Uh, again, <laughs> Guy Winch joins us, licensed psychologist, author of several books, including Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. As today we explore uh, why we feel guilty and how if we can't move past the guilt, how it can impact um, our everyday lives, our happiness. And we talked just shortly earlier um, about uh, the psychological wounds that it can uh, put on us. In your book, you write about a college student, I think it's Yoshi, um, how if we can't move past the guilt, it can impact how we function every day. So, yeah, just uh, all examples in my book, the names are, you know, fake names, obviously, to uh, hide uh, the person's identity. But let's call the person Yoshi, I did in a book. And Yoshi was a uh, student of Japanese immigrants who took lesser jobs than their careers um, would have indicated when they immigrated to the U.S. because they couldn't get jobs in their careers. They worked extraordinarily hard, and their goal in life was for their son to go to medical school. And Yoshi went into an expensive Ivy League school in a pre-med program, but realized very quickly 
pre-med was not for him, but he was so afraid to tell his parents, he just switched majors and didn't tell them. But then by the time the last semester came around, when he was about to graduate and his finals were before him, he was so guilt-ridden because he knew that now it's going to come out because now he's going to have to say, no, I didn't apply to medical school. And he was so guilt-ridden and it was such an eruption of guilt. He was unable to focus during his finals. He was literally at risk of actually not graduating because the guilt he felt was so comprehensive. It interfered with his ability to study on the most basic levels. And what that story was about was really how essential all the ingredients of an essential apology Ah, because Yoshi actually managed it with his parents almost as best as one can, in that he offered an extraordinarily sincere apology. He was very, very clear about uh, the cost to the parents of his not telling them the truth, that they would trust him less, that they would lose face with their friends, the massive disappointment, the incredible amounts of money they spent on this school because of the pre-med program when he could have gone gone to a state school if he wasn't going to be pre-med. The thing he didn't offer them was a certain uh, offer of atonement. He didn't say something like, you know what, and the minute I get a job, I'm going to put aside money from every paycheck because I want to pay you back for the difference between what a state school would have been and what that school would have been, you know, or just you like it in a way, would have allowed them to feel that, you know, he's he really gets how much of a sacrifice that was and how much he took advantage of it. And he also, they can also say face with their friends and say, well, our son is doing something else, but look at this. He's such a a mensch. I'm mixing cultures here, but he's such a mensch. He's mm-hmm. going to, you know, pay us back. Um, and because he didn't do that, um, they couldn't quite forgive him, and he knew it. And they expressed that, and they just walked out and didn't speak to him. And it just became much, much more torturous for him. Mm. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to, one of the reasons we're talking about this today again is at some point in our lives we've all felt again that emotion of guilt. Uh, but if it continues to fester, it can have serious consequences on our mental health. What happens, Guy, if some of the the treatments that you mentioned in your book uh, don't help resolve that guilt, um, and people are still feeling, uh, you know, a significant guilt in their lives? I mean, what should they do? Well, actually, in in my book, in each of the chapters, each one is about a different emotion. But, but for example, in the one about guilt, I do say at the end, and this is important, if you try these treatments, if you've tried to deal with the guilt, but it remains unresolved, it remains nagging, it remains an interference in your life, then you should see a mental health professional. You should actually perhaps get professional help to dislodge this, uh, this, this, you know, this scratch in your brain that's going to leach uh, emotional and intellectual resources you could be using uh, otherwise. So it's always a good idea to, you know, if you try the self-care options uh, and they don't work, do see a mental health professional because guilt can really uh, have an impact on our life satisfaction and well-being. And it can lead, as we said, to shame. The difference between guilt and shame, just to, to, to remind people, is that guilt is about things we do. Shame is about who we are. And when guilt begins to bleed into shame and it really then impacts how we see ourselves, our self-esteem, our entitlement, our, you know, our relationships. So that can, it can really really bleed and, and have a much bigger impact on our emotional health. So it's, it's significant if it's unresolved, if you've tried the techniques we're talking about and others, and those don't work, then you really should try and see a mental health professional. Uh, We did get a Facebook comment uh, from a listener who writes, my parents didn't guilt me. Thankfully, they just taught me to observe and figure things out for myself. Uh, And she sees guilt as a positive feeling that gets our attention when we might be doing preventable harm. Uh, What's your take, Guy, before we end? Absolutely right. Uh, Guilt is useful, again, in the smaller doses because it alerts us to, oh, don't do that or that's not a good idea or say sorry for that one. That wasn't smart. But 
in too many, uh, if it's lingering, if it's unresolved, if it's too big, then it goes from being useful to being very damaging. And so we have to keep our eye on how much guilt are we having and are we able to uh, dissolve it when we take action. Dr. Guy Winch, licensed psychologist, author of several books, including Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. He joined us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WNPR intern Julius Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. If you appreciate this kind of conversation, joining in uh, on the conversation, the many topics we talk about each and every day here on Where We Live. We ask you for your support. Thank you so much here to my colleagues to tell you how.